0: Thank you for having uh, my family and I here. It's a joy to join all of you. Uh, I'll say a bit more about Erbil, but uh, let's let's can you can you please stand with me as we read the verse we'll be meditating on, and then we'll spend a quick bit just praying. John nineteen thirty. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, "It is finished," and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would soften our hearts this morning. Lord, as we consider what Christ indeed has finished, Father, would you cause our hearts to rejoice, uh, to be glad, uh, to be encouraged to continue putting hope in you and the finished work of your Son. I pray now Lord, that you would remove any distractions and that your Spirit would soften our hearts towards you. Father, thank you for the privilege of just being able to meditate on this verse together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Well, please be seated. I bring you greetings from the city of Erbil. For those of you who don't know where that is, that is the capital of northern Iraq. Uh, my wife and I, uh, we were basically longtime residents of the UAE. I've been in the UAE for about 27 years. I've been in Abu Dhabi for about 11 years, uh, and then My family and I moved all over, but it wasn't until uh, 2019 that my wife and I moved to Northern Iraq. And uh, the church family there, Erbil Baptist Church, they bring you their greetings. Uh, They're grateful for the ways that you pray for us and you enable us to be there. And uh, your church family kind of reminds me of our church family uh, back in Erbil. And I echo what Pastor Gareth said. If any of you are ever interested in visiting us, uh, you're more than welcome to. It's not as glitzy as Dubai or Abu Dhabi, um, but there are people there who love Jesus and who love his word and who love to see his gospel going forth. So my task this morning uh, is to lead us to meditate on Christ's sixth saying from the cross. It is finished. Though it's three words in the English and really only one word in the Greek, my prayer this morning is that Christ's words will encourage us as believers in our faith. It would encourage us in living lives of, of grateful obedience. Uh, it, it would encourage us in pursuing righteousness because of what Christ has accomplished for sinners at the cross. If you're taking notes, my main point is very simple. Christ is the perfect sacrifice who reconciles sinners to God. Christ is the perfect sacrifice who reconciles sinners to to God. My first point is who we are, who we are. Jesus remains as one of the most interesting figures in human history. He's a polarizing figure in the sense that there's always some kind of debate concerning the claims he made about himself and therefore what it means for the world. Now, there's, there's many historical documents that people consider fondly as part of our, our history as a human race. Uh, there's a sense of accomplishment when we consider some of the great works like, like Plato or, or stuff by Socrates or Aristotle. There's not as many copies of these documents, but people have no problem considering the importance of these documents in human thought. But it's different with God's words in the Bible especially when we consider Jesus. In a quote most famously connected to C.S. Lewis, he's either a liar, a lunatic or a crazy person, or, or Lord. That is to say, when we seriously consider the things Jesus says about himself in the Bible, and even about us, and even this world, he makes shocking claims that should cause anyone to pause and seriously consider. People have many opinions about what Jesus came for. Uh, Did he come to just physically heal people? Uh, Did he come to give people a a better life so they won't suffer anymore once they run to him? Uh, Is he a good example that we are to model our life after? What you personally believe about Jesus this morning greatly affects why you look to him and what you look to him for. John the Baptist leaves us no space for confusion concerning what Jesus came to do. The one who came after John still ranked before John because he was before him. He was, as John says, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And John the Baptist's proclamation of Christ as the Lamb of God reveals who Jesus is and his purpose for coming into our broken world. Jesus came to be the payment for my sin and your sin. Who Jesus is, is God's provision for who we are, sinners, not just in what we do, but who we fundamentally are before a holy God. We are totally depraved by nature. The Bible describes this as being completely sinful. We are brought forth in iniquity. We've all fallen away together since Adam and Eve. We've, We've become corrupt. And really before God, there is no one who does good. Not even one. We're unable to do any good for anybody or even God without some hint of wrong motives within us. And why? Well, because according to Jesus, out of the heart, which the Bible describes as who the center of who we are, out of our center comes evil thoughts, uh, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile us before a holy God. And perhaps you're thinking this is a depressing way to roll into the next week. But friends, there is ample proof of this in our world. There are criminal gangs running the entire country of Haiti as we speak. And these thugs, they mark their territory and they display their power by making an example of women and children, using them as they please as a warning to others. There's fake recruiters who collect money from poor villagers in the subcontinent, giving them false hope of a job and and lodging in the Middle East. Whole villages pool their resources together just to send one of their own overseas. But when they arrive, they find out that the recruiter has disappeared. The money's gone. The phone number has changed. And the correspondence is no longer there. And all they have is a visit visa provided for them. No job, no lodging. And they're stuck. But even among the poor of this world, there's also evil. Charles Dickens writes there is the tyranny of ignorance. There's the tyranny of the half educated. There's a tyranny of the poor and the ignorant. There's a tyranny of the rich and the well informed. There's a tyranny of religious fanaticism. There's a tyranny of unbelief. The point is, the point that I'm making is that it's not only the wealthy and powerful through some ill gotten gain that are capable of evil. There can be evil and oppression from those who have even experienced it themselves. Back where we live in Northern Iraq, I'm always, in, I'm always astounded, but in some ways not even surprised when I hear of, of how those people there who've experienced evil and, and near extermination, those who have longed for grace and thriving, they themselves oppress and display injustice to those beneath them. There's many refugees that are coming in from Syria and Lebanon and many of them get mistreated by the locals there. But we don't need much proof. We don't, you don't need to get on a plane to believe that our hearts are problematic. I can say with full confidence, including myself, that every single one of us in this room sins. We all sin. Our human roots are, are stained, as Genesis 3 tells us. As sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Through Adam and Eve's disobedience, many were made sinful. If we say we have no sin, uh, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, perhaps you're thinking again, I didn't come to church to come berated by this preacher. In fact, compared to others, I'm not that bad. We We all struggle here and there. I'm a little better than that guy that cut someone else in traffic. Uh, I'm better than that guy who uh, ran over a bird on his way from Dubai to Abu Dhabi earlier today. Even when we sin against the other, you might think it's not as big as extortion. But the things that we do within, is, is, it's what condemn us as well before the Lord. And if we consider that laundry list that I read earlier of what comes out of our hearts, according to Jesus himself, there's really not a single person who can say they are without any fault. The righteous living that the only righteous God requires of us is unattainable. It's unlivable for us, even on our best days. The standard is far, far higher than you and I can ever imagine. Listen to Jesus. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You might say, that's terrible. I have a good heart. I have good intentions. But then God says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We have an inclination towards sin. Our our hearts are are always ready to desire for what leads to spiritual death, while our enemy prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. If that isn't hard enough, sin has a way of hardening our hearts towards the Lord. Now, perhaps this this thorough nature of, of, of our sinfulness, maybe you're feeling encouraged to try harder right now where you sit. But trying harder only makes it clear to the Lord that you have some idea that you can earn some standard of righteousness before God by your own efforts, by your own piety, by your own pursuit of devotion to Jesus. Now, if it were up to us to decide the standard of how hard we have tried or how, 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 how much good is good enough, we might succeed. Maybe. But if we're honest we fail our own standards as well. There are days when it's evident to us that we have not lived up to our own standards of goodness. And God has revealed what he expects of us. It's perfection. Not because he's mean. God's not trying to be mean. But it's because God, by, by virtue of who he simply is, he is perfection. He's not even trying to be perfect. He is perfect. He's the kind of moral purity and unchangeable perfection in whose presence evil and sin shudders. He's the beauty of the sun as it dawns on a sleepy land. His mere presence evokes a sense of falling short when we draw near. The prophet Isaiah, in a vision, he wept over his sin and unworthiness as he saw God being praised by the angels. Woe to me, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. When God gave his law to Israel on Mount Sinai, God intended to lead his people by his given word. His word would lead them in how they would live with one another, with him, and how they'd be able to worship him, though they were a sinful people. But this law revealed the holiness of God. They would be consecrated as he is holy. It would point to the covenant that God was making to them as his people, and he is their God. Obedience to God's law would bring blessings for God's people, but disobedience would bring curses. Along with all these, God's law has revealed our sin and how short we have fallen of his standard. No matter how hard we try to do the works of the law, nobody can be justified in his sight, since his law reveals our sin. To rely on the works of the law to save us is futile, for it renders us under a curse. Even if you keep most of the law, if you fail even at any one point of it, you're guilty of breaking the entire thing. James 2.10 talks about that. And the law revealed the need for a sacrificial system for the forgiveness of sin. Blood shed would be the means by which one could be purified from their sin. Without blood, there would be no forgiveness from God. But the sacrifices were unable to permanently remove sin. They just temporarily covered it. The fact that God's people had to give the same sacrifices every year reveals that they could not make people perfect before God. The sacrifices were a reminder that it's ultimately impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. I could go on and on. This is all from the Bible. Our broken world reveals how thoroughly incapable we are of being right with God, whether in our deeds, in our thoughts, or even in trying to keep his moral law. We're spiritually dead. We're at the bottom of the ocean. Friends, this should cause us to consider our eternal helplessness before the Lord. The English preacher Charles Spurgeon said, We are never in a healthier state than when we are fully aware of our own sinfulness. And it's not like we're neutral either before God. We actively engage in what God is opposed to in various ways, and one day we're going to have to stand before Him and have to answer for how we have lived. I can't think of a day when I have not been selfish, have not been proud, I've not been self-absorbed, I've not been unkind, where I've not been well, I've, where I've been quick to speak and slow to listen, I could go on and on. But why is spiritual health founded on a self-awareness of our spiritual state? Well, here's why. Because we will never see the need for Jesus in our lives if we don't see how separated from God we are, how unlike God we are, how undeserving we are, how spiritually dead we are. Jesus doesn't make sense at all to anybody, even those from a Christian background, if you don't think you're sinful before a holy God. There's no safety in Christian heritage, nor in being in close proximity with Jesus. You might have been raised in a Christian household, perhaps raised by Christian parents, where church was a regular occurrence for you, but it doesn't guarantee that you're eternally safe. You, might, you could be in a room with Jesus You might know of God, but he doesn't know you. He might not know you because his son does not know you. You might know of the bridegroom's wedding feast, but do you have a seat at his table? How often we hear stories of people who discover that they have a terminal illness far too late. Friends, let's not be too late in responding to the Lord, who alone can give salvation through his Son. Let our hearts not be cold to, the, to God's call to turn from your sin and to trusting to, in Jesus himself. So I've really tried my best to outline the problem for us, if it isn't clear enough. Our problem is we are a thoroughly distorted creation. We are not who we're made to be. What hope Do we have? What is the means of escape? What is our hope of change if this is who we fundamentally are? Let's move to our next point. Look at who Christ is. Well, friends, what you personally believe about Jesus this morning greatly affects why you look to him and what you look to him for. Jesus' condescension into our time and space was necessary. He alone would be able to save his people from sin. And there is much beauty and mystery. How is it that the eternal would come entering into time and space, forever becoming fully God, fully man, for the rest of eternity? Christ's mere presence caused the demon possessed to fall on their knees. His actions displayed his divinity. Peter fell to his knees asking for Jesus to depart from him because of how aware he became of his sinfulness in the light of Jesus. Jesus rebuked windstorms that brought great fear to fishermen. Words spoken by Jesus were more than enough to bring the wind and sea in obedience to him. And his is the same voice that victoriously declares it is finished from the cross. His words declare peace between God and all who would trust in his Son. In him alone, the fullness of the eternal God was pleased to dwell, and yet he drew near to us. He was fully acquainted with what was within the heart of humanity, entering into a world that was made through him, But a world that did not know him. A world that was not neutral in front of their creator, but loved the darkness and showed evil in its deeds. Yet Jesus is not repulsed by us. He drew near. He was born as we are, yet without sin. And though we are a raging river of brokenness, the sinner's deeds and being disappear into the deep, boundless ocean of God's mercy. And we as sinners can rejoice because in Christ, God's mercy is never far off. Christ's incarnation shows us God's definite plan to fulfill his promise to save his people. His dismissal of Satan in the wilderness was a warning to all of what was to follow for the powers of hell as he did his earthly ministry. It was also a warning to, to the rest of of hell for what would happen in the rest of eternity through his work. He was sent by his father, born as one of his own creation, born under the law God gave so that he would be the one to redeem those under the law. And somehow he, he fulfilled it all perfectly. He fulfilled its demands perfectly. And we could have never done this. The law would hang over our heads with its requirements. But for those who trust in Christ, he has completed it fully. He is our righteousness apart from the law. He is our freedom from fear and condemnation. He came to be our great high priest, one who is thoroughly able to sympathize with the many weaknesses of the human condition. All these things mentioned he knows it all. He knows evil thoughts. He knows what it is to be tempted by sexual immorality, by theft, by murder, by adultery, by coveting, by wickedness, by deceit, by sensuality, by envy, by slander, by pride, by foolishness, by enmity, by strife, by fits of anger, by rivalries, by dissensions, by divisions, by drunkenness, by orgies, tempted in every single way, yet wholly perfect and without any transgression. Friends, Jesus, knowing all of this about us, he enters once and for all into the holy places, not through the blood of goats and calves, these sacrifices that cannot thoroughly satisfy, but our high priest enters by the means of his very own blood to secure an eternal redemption for us. Now, how wonderful that the Lamb of God would set his face like flint as he considered the cross, despising the sin and the shame. He would enter once and for all, offering his body as an acceptable sacrifice that would sanctify his people once and for all. He lays his life down willingly for his people. It was not forced on him, nor did he have to muster some kind of initiative for his people. He laid his life down of his own accord, yet having the authority to take it up again if he wanted to. On what, what we have inherited from our forefathers, our futile ways of sin, Christ has ransomed us from that. But not with things that are perishable, like silver or gold, but with his very own precious blood, the blood of the lamb with no blemish or spot. Friends, the God that we are separated from because of who we are shows us his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God revealed that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin, but he came to die that we might be justified and declared righteous by his blood and saved by him from the wrath of God that we deserve. While God's people were enemies, Christ's death reconciles them back to him and his perfect life saves them. All we like sheep have strayed, but he lovingly came as the good shepherd who lays down his life for his wayward sheep. And he's not a hired hand who would run away when trouble comes. He knows every single one of his sheep and he will go far and wide, leaving 99 just to retrieve one that is lost. If you are in Christ, your fear can be removed because Christ will come for you. He does not change his mind as he makes his way towards you. Instead, he calls out for you from among the tombs to cover you with his life and to bring you back home. The desire of the Savior is that he should lose none of his people. He desires to bring them to himself that they may see the glory he had before he came down to become one of us. Jesus desires that his bride, the church, would dine with him forever. And as he loves her, he intends to keep the vows he has made to her, to keep her for himself alone. If you're in Christ, you don't need to fear that Christ might leave you. If he has saved you, he fully intends to save you because nobody can snatch out of the Father's hands whomever the Father gives. As we've considered who Christ is this morning, friend, where do you find yourself? Who is Jesus to you? Who is Christ to you? Who is the God-man on that cross to you this morning? Is he an example? If he's merely an example to, to model our life after, we're still unaware of how dire our eternal state is. And perhaps we think our biggest issue is that We're not living good enough when actually what we need is for God to pardon us first. What good is our deeds if all they are is filthy rags before God? What good is our efforts to please God when he's not our our father in the first place because we've not been founded in his son? Friends, Jesus is not an example. He's the solution for your sin and mine. He's the lamb of God who came to lay his life down for his people. And he didn't come just to heal us physically, as some people might think, but more so to heal us of our spiritual cancer, one that has rendered us terminal since the time of Genesis 3 in the garden. And like with the paralytic in Mark 2, Jesus desires to heal us of our spiritual paralysis before dealing with our physical ailments. He knows his priorities. What good is a healed body or a filled stomach if we're still condemned in our sin? What good is our grasp of good theology if it doesn't lead us to cry out to the Lord because He alone can save? Friend, who is the God-man on the cross to you this morning? He is the answer to our greatest problem. And He's not repulsed by who we are, by how He has found us. He came for us. He is the promised Son of Man who came to suffer to be killed on the third day, to be raised. All this for his people. All this because this was necessary. And friends, we cannot pay for that price ourselves. We'd be perishing for all eternity, paying for the wrong we have done. What a profound mystery that Christ would die for sinners like you and I. What a profound kindness of God when he awakens us to our eternal lostness that we can partake of grace. He drinks the wrath we deserve, but kindly extends a cup overflowing with goodness towards us. Friend, what you personally believe about Jesus this morning greatly affects why you look to him and what you look to him for. applications for us to consider in light of all of this. Firstly, if you're in Christ, friend, it is completely finished. There's nothing that you can do to add to what loving kindness God has shown to you through his son, Jesus. There's nothing more we can do. But be aware of areas in your life where you might be tempted to think that your obedience is what saves you. Where, to, where you strive to earn what has been, where you think that you can earn something uh, in some area of obedience towards God. We can't make him love us any more than he already loves us in Christ. I want to encourage the members of New Life Church to probably discuss with each other what, is it, what are ways you might be prone in trying to earn your salvation by piety or, or personal holiness, Consider what is the relationship between Christ's finished work and the good works we do as those who have already been saved. And friends, keep returning to the good news. We were never worthy in the first place, yet God sets his love upon us in His son. Christ is forever worthy. If we're found in him, God loves us as his own. Secondly, Christ's finished work is not a permission for us to keep on sinning, nor to trample underfoot the Son of God, profaning the blood by which we've been sanctified. He calls us, rather, to to live as living sacrifices for Him. And we can have confidence in pursuing this because God works in His children, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. As you desire to live a holy life, as you desire to live a life of obedience, you can be encouraged knowing that the God who saved you is also enabling you to live for him. And he gives us his spirit. He doesn't leave us as we are. Jesus said, It's better for me to go so I can send you a helper. And he brings to remembrance for us all that Christ has said and done. So, friends, I want to encourage you as fellow believers to encourage one another, to exhort one another to pursue lives of obedience because of what Christ has finished. And warn each other as long as today is called today so you won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Lastly, if you're not in Christ, friend, I have, I have strived to argue from God's word about our eternal losslessness. Your only means of forgiveness and escape comes through christ alone you can't earn either through action or intention the salvation that you might be inclined to toil for christ's finished work is eternally greater than yours his work is sufficient and he will be worshiped for eternity by multitude from every nation from all tribes and all peoples and all languages And the God who who has created you, who holds you together now, has sent his son to ransom his people with his shed blood. Won't you look to him for your salvation? Friends, what you personally believe about Jesus this morning greatly affects why you look to him and what you look to him for. Friends, Christ alone is the perfect sacrifice who reconciles Sinners to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the kindness that you show to us through the finished work of your son. Thank you, Father, that you have, through Jesus, you've paid for it all in full. Thank you that there's nothing more that we can add. Lord, thank you that we can strive to live lives of obedience because of what Christ has accomplished. Thank you that there is no more fear, but only hope as we look forward to being reunited with you through the finished work of your son. Lord, help us live in light of these truths. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.